0: This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed
2: to change. Kathy Townsend, uh, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. And look, it's it's really a real pleasure to have you on the show. Your name came across my radar, I think probably a couple of years ago now. You were quoted in a, uh, a newspaper article around... And I'll quote you, or sorry, at least quote the article. It says, University of Sunshine Coast Animal Ecology Lecturer, Dr. Kathy Townsend, has spent 10 years studying sea turtles and said 30% of dead sea turtles she had studied in Moreton Bay recently were full of plastic. So I looked at that and went, that's someone I really, really want to talk to about, A, what she's found in 10 years of looking at sea turtles in Moreton Bay but B, uh, tell us about this plastic ingestion issue associated with these uh, sea turtles. So thanks again uh, for coming on our show.
0: No, oh, well, thank you for having me. That is certainly one of my big areas of research is looking at the impact of marine debris on sea turtles in particular. The whole thing, do you want me to get into the story of how it all oh, happened? We, lo-
2: we <laughs> love the backstory, Kathy. <laughs>
0: So, this all happened because I was very fortunate to work and live on Morton Bay Research Station on North Stradbroke Island for about 20 years. And during my time there, the research station is in the middle of the township of Dunwich. And so, of course, we were recognized as marine experts in the local community. And so, what ended up happening is we started to get sick and injured marine life, and in particular, sea turtles showing up on our doorstep. We started to get lots of sea turtles coming in unwell that superficially looked fine. You know, there was no big chop marks on their shells. You know, there was no big wrapped around ropes or anything like that. But yet these animals were dying. And so that's kind of where this story started, because that really piqued my curiosity. Because I said, well, well, what is actually going on here? What's what's happening? I sort of started to delve into it a little bit further and I started to talk to a lot of other carers on sea turtles and they started to tell me, particularly the guys down in Ballina, down in the Australian Seabird Rescue Group, who have been doing work on turtles for quite some time. They were saying, listen, we really think that marine debris is a problem. We think that the reason that these animals are dying is because they're consuming marine debris. Now this was back in about 2003, four, um, than this first started. So, my first thing, my scientists kicked in. I said, okay, well, are they saying this because, you know, the few animals that they've opened up, it, it's been so shocking to see marine debris in their gut that it kind of sticks out in their mind as mm-hmm. it being a bigger problem than it actually is? Or is it genuinely a problem? So the only source of information that I had back then was the Queensland Marine Animal Stranding Database, which is run by the Queensland government. And I thought, well, I'll go and have a bit of a look in there because I'll see, because they're, they're supposed, you know, if they have the ability to, they'll record what the cause of death was for those animals that get stranded. And I thought, well, let's have a bit of a look at that. Let's let's have a look to see what the data is telling us. And back then, it was saying that about percent of the turtles were being recorded as dying from marine debris and I and I looked at that and I said well if it is two percent that actually would probably be okay from a population level point because two percent is probably mm. similar sort of levels as predation and things like that mm. however instinctively I kind of felt that that wasn't really telling the story and one of the things about marine debris you can't just look at an animal and know that it's been impacted by marine debris. You physically have to open it up, remove the guts, squeeze out the gut contents sieve it you know like run it underwater and sieve it you know rummage through it and look to see what you can find which of course is disgusting and <laughs> gross and nobody wants to do that, so
1: uh, to that one. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> like honestly like so most of the data that goes into the Queenslands Johnny shining database comes from rangers right so hmm. on the gra- ground rangers they've got hell of a lot of other things that they need to be doing with their time right like it for me to do a turtle necropsy it takes three hours from beginning to end so that's a that's a big time investment Mm. for somebody who's who's got a whole bunch of other things on their plate right so with this knowledge of it being only you know uh, two to three percent of the animals potentially dying from marine debris I sort of went well is this the case or is this just a reflection of the way that the data was collected? Right. Cause mm. typically what they do is they just look at the outside. If they can see a big shark bite or if they can see a big chop mark from a boat, or if they can see a, you know, wrapped in a crab pot or whatever, then that's pretty easy to sort of claim that's yeah. what probable cause mm. of death was. But when you start to get into things that are internal, then that's where it's a bit more of a problem. So that's kind of where it all started.
1: And of course, they can't—they can't tell us, "Hey, I'm I'm crook. You, know, we've done, mm. you know, we've done—you know—we've done podcasts with Daryl Blatchie, who's um, over in the Philippines um, and doing uh, whale necropsies. You know, we're now speaking to you. It's not like you can—the animal can say, "Hey, I'm I'm pretty sore." Visually, you look at them, and, and there's no way to, to tell unless, as you say they die and then you've got to go through and do the necropsy and really find it out for yourself. I mean, that's the shocking part about this all.
0: Yeah. And, and it, and it's not like, it's not like a vet. So it's not like you, so with, as a vet, you usually have somebody who owns that pet that can give you some yeah. background about that animal, right? They can say, "Oh, it's been, it's not been eating well lately. Mm. It's, you know, it's not acting in the same way." So you don't have any of that. So I often joke that you know I was running sea turtle CSI, where I was basically, <laughs> you know, basically trying to figure out, like, put all the clues of the pieces of the puzzle together to try to figure out what potentially had happened to that turtle over time. They were looking superficially fine on the outside, maybe a little skinny, but didn't really know why they were dying, checked out to see if maybe it had the rumors that it had something to do with marine debris, looked at the data that was available, seemed like it wasn't reflective of what we were seeing in real life. And so based on that, that's where my science interest peaked, really. It's where I said, okay, there's something going on here. And... I feel that we need to look into this much closer than it is at the moment. And back then, when I was talking to my other colleagues, several of them actually said to me, why are you bothering? I mean, even if they eat plastic, it doesn't, it's benign. It doesn't, it's not a problem. It doesn't matter. It'll just go through anyway. So that was really the attitude. You know, that's not that long ago. We're talking about no. 2005. So it was really being... Thought of as not a big problem, so I thought, well, you know what, I'm going to have a look. You know, if it's not a big problem, that's great, that's good. There's other things we can concentrate on, but it's it's worthwhile at least having a look. So I got myself all the permits and things to be able to go out there and start gathering these dead and um, stranded sea turtles that had washed up. Do
1: you have to get a permit? Sorry, let's back up. You have to get a permit.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Because sea turtles are protected species, Mm. so you're not allowed to even once I did. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly once they're dead too, because of course then people would go out and, you know, collect mm. shells and stuff like that and okay. make it an yeah, excuse. Yeah, cool.
1: Makes sense. And
0: you know, they could say, Oh, well, well I got, you know, I got this shell because the animal was dead. And you're like, yeah, well, yeah. I, how I do you know that? that? You know, yeah. You may, yeah, exactly. Mm. So you're not allowed to own body parts or anything from these protected species. And then in the meantime, I was also working really closely with uh, the Quandamooka people. So the, the traditional owners from, of Majeraba or North Strabuk Island. And so we really worked as a, as a team where they would be bringing me in animals. And then I would do the necropsies and I'd feed back to them, you know, what the, what the cause of death was. And then on top of that, at the end, after the body, after I had done everything, turtles are a very culturally significant species for them and what had been happening in the past is when a sick sea turtle was unwell it was getting shipped to the mainland and then if it died it just disappeared and so it was actually quite upsetting for them it was a bit like to them it was a bit like losing an auntie or uncle sort of thing and not knowing where they've gone so very much part of my research when I was on strati was to make sure that I maintained the animals that, that, so if I did a necropsy, the animals stayed on country and then the rangers would come and, and they'd collect the animals. So I'd basically remove the guts, put the shell back together. Um, and then wrap it up nicely in a plastic bag with a label list of what the cause of death was. So they could see exactly what that animal dies from. And then they would go and put it back to country in a, in a ceremony that it was a men's business thing so I didn't go but it was you know something that was um, part of very important for them culturally to make sure the animals went back to country that was really exciting because that was wonderful because I was working with with the guys from um, the Kwandamuka Rangers and it was really wonderful because that trust and bond built up over time which which is great.
1: Well it's science and and religion and- you are bringing, you know, science to the people. And and that's really sad that they were just going to the mainland and then on off because, you know, you know, that's, that's really important to them.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and I really think that traditional knowledge, I mean, really the indigenous people were the first scientists, right? Like you talk to them, they, they know about the seasons they know about, you know, if this particular species shows up, then that means this, you know, that it's all about the understanding the natural world. And, um, so i'm I'm a huge enthusiast about bridging that gap between Western science and mm. traditional knowledge because there's a lot to be learned on both sides. It often turns out, not surprisingly that we have a lot of commonality in mm. um, our understanding and, uh, and 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 also boost one another in our understanding as well, looking at it from a different perspective so so, again, as I said, working with the, the rangers, but then also working with everybody else that's on the island too, you know, the rest of the broader community. It, it became renowned that, you know, if there was a sick sea turtle, phone up, phone up their research station and um, they'll, they'll help out the sea turtles in one way or another. And, of course, we'd get live sea turtles too, and, and those ones we would triage and uh, rehydrate, and they would get sent to the mainland to either Australia Zoo, to the wildlife hospital there, or Underwater World, which is now changed to Sea Life, I think is their name now, or Sea World, depending. But again, as part of my permits, I wrote in it, if those animals passed away, they had to come back. The bodies had to come back to the island as well, which um, didn't make some of the hospitals and stuff very happy. But <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was one of the things that I felt was important. To maintain that trust and also because it was just so important to to the traditional owners um and 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 for me it was not really a big deal it was a case of making sure it was written in but then for them it was um very important from a a spiritual and cultural side that it, it worked that way yeah so anyway so then i started getting these animals coming through And very quickly, it turned out that, so I started opening up the animals, looking at determining whether or not there was marine debris in there, also looking for signs that the marine debris was potentially the the cause of death. So I certainly had animals that came in that I found marine debris in their guts, but it was quite obviously that wasn't the thing that killed them. So, you know, it could have been a boat strike or it could have been something else. It could have been a big parasite infection, but... I also was finding ones that had substantial amounts of debris in their gut that was determined that that was the primary cause of death. And very, very quickly, instead of that 2% that we talked about previously, we're now talking closer to 30%, which which even surprised me, to tell you the truth, because in the early days, I thought, well, it kind of feels more than... You know what I'm seeing, it feels like it's more than just you know two percent, but I, in my head, I was thinking maybe ten, but when it came out to be thirty percent. and with some some of the animals, so how old the animal really does affect. The probability of the animal dying of marine debris, so the little guys that we call the last years, which are just um, about the size of a, a small, like like a side plate, I guess, you know, if, if you think of a side plate, those little guys, 98% of the ones that, I came, that came through my lab had died due to ingestion of marine debris. So the little ones were really heavily being impacted. Was
1: it? Kathy, is that because they're so small that their intestines or their, their organs are so small and a little bit of marine debris gets in there and and, and, and it's like if, if, if a baby, you know, ate a bit of Lego, you know, it could have detrimental results to it, whereas an adult could probably let it pass through. Is that the reason?
0: Yeah. So it's there's a couple of reasons. That's definitely one is the physical side of the gastrointestinal system. So the physical size of it. The other thing is the lifestyle that these smaller sea turtles have. So these <laughs> cool. these these small sea turtles are known as the lost years. And the lost year sea turtles are the ones that after this hatchling is run down the beach, it has these 72-hour automated swimming response. And during that 72 hours, it's swimming as far away from the coastline as it physically can. Um, And you can see this automated swimming response if you've ever had an opportunity to see hatchlings run down the beach and have seen somebody pick one up and they just keep going you know like even if you're picking them up they keep you know moving forward they're trying to move forward their flippers are keep moving
2: so they're genetically hardwired to swim as fast as they can or f- as far as they can in 72 hours
0: yeah yeah that's and amazing they Yep, yeah, they'll continue to swim for that full 72 hours and then once they've got past that 72 hours and they
1: how go, far how far do they get in 72 hours with those wee flippers
0: well it depends upon if they get eaten or not i suppose <laughs> Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. <laughs> um, and it oh, also yeah, depends yeah. on the currents, of course. I mean, mm. yeah, you know, so once they get out there, they basically head out to open ocean and then they just start drifting the currents and they can, they'll spend the next five to 15 years out there basically just drifting out and they can do an entire ocean basin you know like they can go from one side of the ocean all the way across to the other side of the ocean and while they're out there they're basically floating on the surface and they every time they come across uh, you know a, a bunch of debris all collected together or if they come across a jellyfish Whatever they happen to find, they'll eat it. So they're sort of out in the middle of this vast blue desert, so to speak. And the food availability is not great. So they tend to converge into these areas where the currents also up, like where upwellings are and where there's currents, where there's a greater probability of food compared to other places Mm -hmm. in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so that because they're out there drifting around in this blue desert, they're far less picky as to what they eat, right? Because they don't know when their next meal is going to come around. So in the old days, before we started dumping plastics into the oceans, if they did come across something in these convergent zones... It was probably going to be organic anyway it may have been yeah, you know palm leaves or grass or you know if it was terrestrial it was still going to be organic right but now these same convergent zones are generating debris are generating this this stuff but now we're, we're looking at man-made polymers so these younger sea turtles There's a couple, as I said, a couple of things happening. They do physically have a smaller gastrointestinal system. So it does mean if they do eat something, it's a higher probability for them to have an impact associated with it. But then secondly, we've got this lifestyle where they're drifting in this blue desert. And whenever they come across something to eat, they'll eat it because they don't Mm. know when their next meal is going to come across. So that means that they tend to be a little less selective as far as what Mm. they're consuming. And we can actually see that with the debris. We actually started to ask some of these questions. So the first question was, is it a problem? Yes, it's a problem, okay? So 30% of the animals that were coming through the lab had so much debris in their gut that that was the primary cause of death.
2: So that's a key point. So that, from my perspective, that's a staggering number. You've got a 30% of all dead sea turtles that you're finding in Morton Bay are dying as a direct result Of plastic ingestion that's a staggering number
0: well it it does sound staggering but you know what in some places in the world it's actually much higher than that so some places off of um, south america for example 100 of the sea turtles that have been opened up in those regions have found they found marine debris in their guts so it's a worldwide problem even though you're saying 30% is staggering, that's actually on the lower end of what's happening globally. Um, It is a really, really big issue.
2: That 30%, are they, I guess, they're dying as a direct result of plastic ingestion, but there are the rest of the the sea turtles that aren't dying as a direct result of plastic ingestion, do they still have plastic often in their bellies anyway? But I guess the primary cause of the death might not necessarily be the plastic in their bellies.
0: Yeah, but that number is much much smaller. So there was probably only about an additional four or five percent that had plastic in their gut, but that wasn't the primary cause of death. So, right. Yeah. So that does happen as well. And actually, maybe we should let's. This might be a good segue to talk about this. So. Yeah, yeah. Sea turtles can are impacted by marine debris in a couple of different ways. So what they can either get tangled up in it or they can eat it. They can ingest it. Um, when they ingest it, a couple of different things can happen. It can either cause a gut perforation, which means that that item is sharp, and so it's poked through the gut's lining. And then the gastrointestinal fluids spill into the body cavity, and that creates septicemia, and the animal very slowly dies of septus, which is you know, not a very pleasant way to go. So that's one way that that can happen. The other way that they can happen is they can get a thing that's called gut impaction. And gut impaction is really common, much more common in sea turtles than it is in many other species. The reason for this is because sea turtles have these downward facing spines in their throat. I'm sure you've probably seen them online, photographs of like looking down the mouth of a, a leatherback sea turtle, for example. It looks like a monster's cave with all these spikes facing downwards all sea turtles have these downward facing spines in their throat and the downward facing spines are there because all sea turtles love eating jellyfish and jelly i don't know if anybody's tried to bob for apples before um you know trying to eat something in a water that's kind of slimy and slippery it's (laughs) quite difficult particularly since they haven't got hands you know they haven't got hands to hold on to it and bite it so with with jellyfish when they go to bite the jellyfish, they take a bite, starts to move down the throat, but if they go to take, you know, open their mouth to take another bite, this, the jellyfish slides back mm. out. So these downward facing spines are designed so that as the jellyfish gets swallowed, it sort of comes up t- towards the spines. Then when the, the sea turtle opens its mouth again, the spines will actually lock and prevent the jellyfish from sliding out of its throat then it you know takes another bite swallows it a bit further it goes down a little bit further go to open up their mouth again it starts to slip and the spines lock preventing it mm. from sliding out which is fantastic for eating jellyfish <laughs> really terrible yeah. if you need
3: to vomit
2: Wow. So. yeah so they essentially they essentially do not have any regurgitation ability so no. once once something enters their mouth uh, it's going Going down the other end, or staying in its system. That's right. Even if they don't like the taste of it,
0: no, they don't. They're not that picky. <laughs> well, no, no,
1: no, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to but do they know? So, say for instance, a turtle is eating a plastic bag. Uh, you know, does the turtle know that this is not a jellyfish? Are they that? Do they have the senses? No.
0: From the back side of it, from me actually opening them up, it doesn't appear to be okay, so. Cool. And there's another thing that actually. So there's there's another factor that makes sea turtles susceptible to ingestion of marine debris it's because of their natural behavior Mm. they're very much like dogs they're very naturally curious and they actually will mouth things so if they see unusual objects in their environment like a dog they'll actually mouth it and and pick it up and play with it and i've got in one of my other projects we put out unmanned videos on top of cleaning stations on the great barrier reef and i've got multiple bits of footage where sea turtles are coming up and investigating the cameras by actually going over and (laughs) and giving them a bite (laughs) and these cameras so it's the silver gopro cameras in a Mm -hmm. in a translucent case so that's another thing so they they have this behavior where they will naturally sort of test things out and mouth them and you know if, if it's crunchy, I guess, or whatever, they'll decide to swallow it as well. So that there's a combination of these factors that are going on here.
2: And I'm guessing a lot of the time, some plastic items do visually look like a jellyfish as well. Yeah.
0: yeah. So that, so this is also, you're basically following the line of our inquiry. So we Mm. said, you know, we started to ask, is it a problem? Yes. Are they all being affected equally? And we found that all species that were in our region, we found animals. So the loggerheads, the hawksbills, the flatback, the greens, every sea turtle that came into our lab, um, we found marine debris in all of the different species. So it's across the whole board and it's certainly been recorded across the world. Every All, all eight of the world species of sea turtles have been shown to be impacted by marine debris. So it's not just one group. Um, and then I asked the question about the age and that's where we got into the last year's thing. So the mm. younger ones are really heavily impacted. It starts to reduce as they get larger. The next thing we started to ask was are the sea turtles actually selective for certain kinds of debris with mm. that idea in mind? Like the question you just asked about,
3: yeah.
0: are they eating it because it looks like something that like one of their natural prey items We found that, yeah, definitely they do. So we did this in a couple of different ways. One of the first ways we did it is we looked at the debris we were finding in the sea turtles themselves, and then compared that to with the debris that could be found both at sea and on land. And so the idea being that we could compare the proportions. And if the animal is a generalist, so we were basically just taking diet theory, where if you found a new species of animals and you wanted to figure out what it was eating, you'd look at what was inside the gut and compare mm. it to its environment and see what is it, is it selecting for certain things or is it randomly eating whatever is in the environment. And what we found with the lost years is they tended to be much more random in what they ate. It, it reflected more closely what you would find in a random tow or in a random beach cleanup. Mm-hmm. As they started to get older though, and they changed their behavior from this ocean- drifting animal um, during that um, lost year stage, when they changed their behavior and started to become coastal species, uh, or coastal animals, where they've moved from those ocean, open ocean environments and moved into the coastal zone, they also changed their behavior. So when they're out in the open ocean, they're feeding in the top two meters of the water column. Mm. Then when they come back to the coastline, these are the ones that we see. And they're the ones that are now Mm. duck diving down and feeding on seagrass. I'm talking about greens in particular at the minute. They're feeding on seagrass. They're feeding on algae. And they're now changing their behavior from drifting around on the top to spending most of their time sitting down on the bottom with the Mm. occasional pop-up to the top. Those groups of animals, they are selective too, but in a different way. They're very selective. They much more prefer the soft film-like plastic. So think of your plastic bags, Mm your cling wrap, um, those sorts of things, and balloons. Balloons and cling wrap are by far, and even with the last year's one, they consume balloons more than what's available to the environment, which basically says if they see a balloon, they'll stop what they're doing and go and eat it. So this now leads us to that idea that Because they're eating soft film like plastics and they're also eating balloons, the balloons that they're consuming are balloons that have gone up to the stratosphere, shredded, and then dropped back down to the ground mm. again. I don't know if you've seen them; they they literally look yeah. like a jellyfish, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. We, we our most recent podcast guest was uh, with uh, Dr. Morgan Gilmore, who uh, co-authored a paper just recently with Dr. Jennifer Labers around the decomposition rates of balloons. Did you? I'm not sure if you saw that, Kathy. Um, oh, I
0: haven't seen that. I'll have to catch that one. Oh, I know look, Jennifer well, so yeah. I'll have to Yeah, check look, that but.
2: One. But look, in summary, pre this study, there was a, the only real, I guess, documented paper around balloon research and decomposition was a 1989 study put out, would you believe, by the, the uh, yes. American National Balloon Association. So no conflicts of interest there, obviously, but they, they basically came to the conclusion based on a very dubious study that balloons break down at the same rate as oak leaves as in the leaves of an oak tree, and pose no threat to wildlife at all. And obviously, uh, Jennifer and Morgan thought, well, that can't be right because we see um, a whole bunch of balloons in various marine species, birds, uh, turtles. Let's see if we can... Uh, see if this theory uh, is correct. And long story short, they put balloons in seawater, freshwater and in compost environments. And long story short, the balloons didn't break down at all in any sort of meaningful way after, say, 16 weeks in those environments. So essentially completely debunked that myth. But what I was curious as to know was, I'm actually surprised that balloons are really that much of an issue because I didn't really think there'd be that much balloons in the marine environment but what you're saying to me now is actually consistent with what they're finding as well in that yeah whilst there might not necessarily be that many m- balloons in the marine environment it seems like some species definitely target them uh they if if they see, like, like your words before if if a sea turtle sees a balloon floating in the uh, ocean they'll stop what they're doing and go over and eat it
0: which yep. is fascinating yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we again that was based on research that we did. So we did some calculations around that as well. And and that's definitely the case. That that the balloons and the other thing you gotta remember about balloons, and I know exactly that's the study that you're talking about, that nineteen eighty study. Yeah, well that's um,
1: such a I'm sorry, I was blown away by that study. Let's <laughs> just call it bullshit. It's like the balloon manufacturer going out and just doing the, the crappiest test and then yeah. going to the whole world,
2: yep, yeah, these balloons are good to go. I mean it's <laughs> Yeah and and relying on it for 30 plus years. Yeah. In their, all their communications, but also from my perspective, they must see a whole bunch of balloons around their yards or factories and realize, you know what, these things don't break down at all. Maybe yeah. we should tell someone.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, but well in fairness, it can't. So I don't know because yeah. I I've, I've got little kids and well they're they're big now, but when they were little, like you know, they'd have a balloon and then they'd leave it Uh, deflated and they'd leave it for example on the railing of the deck and then you know you come back a few weeks later and it's a melted mess so it does have an ability to to break down in terrestrial situations it's the water that is the is the key difference and um I, i i did i had students who did a similar sort of experiment with with jennifer and and um her student did as well where Basically, as soon as you add water, particularly once you add salt water, it changes the ability of the latex to actually break down. Like, think about it. How do you preserve things? Like, how do you preserve? You wrap meat? it in salt. Yeah, wrap it in salt. So exactly. that isn't
1: that how they used to do it with mummies? Exactly. Like, yeah, so you yeah. add
0: salt, you add salt to things, and it just reduces that decomposition rate in in any way, shape or form. And that's what's happening with the balloons as soon as you put them into a water environment. So you got to remember every balloon that gets released, that's still potentially still out there now, right? So it's, it's, it's like compound interest where you've got all these things building up over time. So, yeah, so again, as I said, so that's what we started to do. We started to look at, well, what is it that's encouraging sea turtles to potentially eat these? And we looked at the vision of the sea turtles themselves. So we looked at the debris, compared what we were finding in the guts, compared that to what we could find out in the oceans. And we found that they seem to be selective and they're selecting for soft plastics and they're selecting for balloons as well. Then we ask the question, does color make a difference? Because, of course, there's lots of different colors that things are consuming. And it turns out, yes, color makes a difference, too. Well,
1: what color so do they like?
0: So they prefer white and clear, yes yeah, that's right. Colors.
1: We, we, we learned that, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is not surprising because, again, that's back to that idea of it looking like a jellyfish. You know, it's, it's, it's looking jellyfish.
1: like some yeah, let's like go good old-fashioned
0: jellyfish. <laughs> And it's quite funny. We've, <laughs> a colleague of mine worked with National Geographic, and they had put these critter cams on a whole bunch of sea turtles in Morton Bay in the hopes that they were going to get images of or footage of the sea turtles feeding on limbia which was this outbreaking microalgae or um, cyanobacteria at the time and they got no images of that but what they got was just these green sea turtles just completely chowing down on (laughs) jellyfish because there was a jellyfish bloom in the bay at the time and at that stage they didn't realize that green turtles in particular ate jellyfish as much as that they did so that because normally if you do a necropsy a jellyfish just turns into moosh so you mm, can't yeah. really see it yeah. very well so all of a sudden they realize that holy moly like jellyfish are like crack to <laughs> <those> sea turtles <laughs> they will literally stop what they're doing and <laughs> ah! <laughs> Feed on them so so uh, that so because of that you know that again this is a be- behavioral thing this was all lining up with what we were seeing on the inside because yeah,
1: you start teachers. going through your research just listening to the story yep tick that box yep okay tick that box so you know it's really starting to tell a story here and and, and you guys must have been going wow i think we're really onto something here
0: that was literally what was happening Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.